And this is WMNF Tampa. Stay tuned for True Talk. Would be fraudulent. Greetings of peace, paradoxical given the gruesome violence that brings us here together. There's no guidebook on how to do this. I'm not sure what I have to gain from today. Let's be clear. There's no closure in the permanence of death. There's no true justice so long as Dia, Yusur, and Razan are robbed of their lives. There is, however, re-exposure to horrific trauma that will continue to forever haunt our families long after you've all moved on in your own respective lives. Good morning and welcome to True Talk. This is your host, Samar Jarrah. We're going to be having a very interesting show today. We're going to be talking to uh, Khalid Al-Jindi about his book, Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians from the Balfour uh, Declaration uh, to Trump. And uh, towards the end of the show, <coughs> excuse me, we're going to be talking... Uh, to Rawaida Abdelaziz about a very disturbing uh, story which is the uh, February 10th, 2015 murder of uh, three uh, Muslim American students two days ago was the sentencing of uh, the uh, criminal who killed them. Uh, you were just listening to the sister of one of the deceased talking. Listen to this music by uh, Reem Al Banna and uh, very soon we're going to be coming back with this interesting show. Reem Al-Banna is of, from Palestine. Uh, she sadly passed away a few um, less than a year ago. Reframe, yanking my neck backwards uncomfortably as he often did from how tight his bear hugs were.
Welcome back to True Talk. This is your host, Samar Jarrah. And as promised from Washington, D.C., I think we will be talking uh, to uh, Mr. Khalid Al-Jindi. Uh, and uh, he is the author of the book, The Blind Spot, America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Balfour is the Balfour Declaration that I'm sure uh, Mr. Khalid will be uh, talking uh, about. Uh, just to give you a little background, Uh, about the author. He is a non-resident fellow in the foreign policy program at the Brookings uh, Institute. As I mentioned, he is the author of the very recently... This is a pre-recorded show. Uh, and uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he was also a participant uh, in the peace process, I think, in Annapolis and uh, elsewhere. Probably uh, Mr. Al-Jindi will be uh, telling more about it. Good morning, uh, Khalid. Uh, good morning, Samar. Uh, allow me to just call you Khalid and <laughs> remove the uh, the uh, formalities. Um, you know, uh, Khalid, my mom uh, uh, was with me in the past three days as I was reading your book, and she had two questions. Minwain Khalid, uh, where are you from? <laughs> and, of course, why this uh, title of the book? Because the whole time mom is asking me, are you sure you're t- uh, reading uh, a book and not a, a novel? So uh, tell me a little bit where you're from. Uh, like t- just to satisfy my mom and then why the title of the book because I think it explains the whole book later on right uh, sure so um, my background actually is not Palestinian uh, my family uh, immigrated from Egypt uh, in uh, well, a long time ago before I was actually shortly after I was born uh, and then we moved to the United States um, And uh, I have always been interested, of course, in Middle East politics in general, human rights issues, uh, and foreign policy. Um, and uh, naturally, I think, uh, like a lot of young Arab Americans, I gravitated toward the Palestinian issue, uh, which seemed to be, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, obviously a concern for our community. Uh, but also in terms of um, how the fact that as Americans we're contributing in a lot of ways to uh, what's happening there. So that's um, kind of my general background. As far as the the title, I mean, the blind spot refers to a kind of general inability on the part of American politicians and policymakers to see uh it, it, it's 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 you know blind spot is obviously something that obstructs your view um it, it's possible to look around it it's possible to compensate for the blind spot um we use our rear view mirrors and our side mirrors to see things that are otherwise obstructed um but because of uh so that's the where the metaphor comes from Because of America's tendency to look at this issue from an Israeli standpoint and from a Zionist standpoint, which has really always been true, and and that's why I looked at the whole hundred years since the Balfour Declaration, Um, uh, certain things get blocked from its vision, particularly as it relates to Israel's occupation, to Palestinian rights, uh, and, uh, and so forth. And so I wanted to write a book about why I thought, you know, lots of people write peace process books. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen many former American negotiators, Israelis, 
uh, even some Palestinian uh, negotiators have written extensively about it. Um, and they usually tend to emphasize, you know, sort of putting the blame on one side or the other. Um, I wanted to look specifically at the American role, because the United States is the chief sponsor of the peace process. It's the sole mediator. It has been for uh, at least 25 years. Um, and, and I wanted to look at how, given its special relationship with Israel, how that affected in real terms um, its ability to mediate between the two sides. And not surprisingly, it has had a very negative effect on, on America's ability to, um, to address the core issues of the conflict. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that there are other books and we have uh, spoken uh, to other authors who wrote, like you said, about the peace uh, process. For instance, I know Dennis Ross wrote a book, uh, Rashid Khalidi from the Palestinian point of view. Uh, but what is interesting uh, with what, what your book is bringing, I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Khalid, is that you're looking at uh, uh, two critical areas of diplomacy, uh, power and politics. With power, It seems that the USA does not pay attention or never paid attention to the fact that one party to the peace, to the peace process is extremely powerful, uh, Israel, the other is not. Also, they never looked at the politics, whether the internal politics that were going on during, let's say, the Kennedy administration, the Truman administration, or the politics of the uh, PA or the PLO or the Palestinians. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've, you've perfectly laid out my, my thesis in terms of the, the way, the two ways in which the blind spot manifests itself. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's exactly right. Because we see, uh, because American policymakers look at the issue from an Israeli lens, um, the things that get filtered out are things like Israel's occupation and, and that huge power imbalance. So we often see American uh, envoys and, and other officials say things like, if we can just get the parties back to the negotiating table, as if um, the negotiations weren't already happening given the power dynamics on the ground. Uh, I mean, of course, the two sides can negotiate, but inside the negotiating room with them is Israel's occupation, the fact that Israel is occupying the other side of the table. Um, and therefore has enormous amounts of leverage uh, that uh, you don't get in, in say, uh, negotiations between two sovereign states who are, you know, trying to renegotiate their border or, or trade relations or something. Um, so the amount of leverage that Israelis have and that they use because they're the occupying power over the Palestinians is something that the United States doesn't really, has never really factored into the process. Um, and so we see, for example, Israel continuing to build a settlement mm -hmm. as they're negotiating. Um, Israel can create those facts on the ground in ways that Palestinians cannot. Uh, we all remember when uh, Israeli tanks were surrounding Yasser Arafat's uh, headquarters in Ramallah uh, for for many, many, many months, really, until he, until he passed away. Um, obviously, that affects the diplomatic process when your soldiers can blockade um, not just the population, but even their own leaders or prevent them from leaving. You've directly 
impacted the, the political process. The other side of the blind spot is, you know, we all know that American policymakers have this enormous sensitivity to internal Israeli politics, and it makes sense because any parties who negotiate, they're negotiating, each side is negotiating not just with the other side, but with their own domestic political opposition, their political rivals, their uh, their public opinion, all of those things are present in the negotiating room. And uh, we, as American officials, I say we just as Americans, but, but in terms of they, U.S. officials, are very sensitive to changes and dynamics inside Israeli politics, uh, who, which members uh, would leave the coalition, the cabinet, if such and such issue like Jerusalem was mm-hmm. discussed or if they took up a settlement freeze. Um, but when it comes to Palestinian politics, it's completely absent from any of their considerations. <laughs> what uh, because of uh, time issues Khalid why is that because uh, even with the first few pages of your book when you start talking about the Balfour Declaration uh, why for instance how could uh, uh, Wilson be talking about self-determination the League of Nations the, later on the United Nations and at the same time not pay attention to the Balfour Declaration and what it is doing to the uh, population of uh, Palestine the majority at the time Why, since the beginning of this conflict, the U.S. was backing uh, this uh, uh, new nation? Yeah, I mean, well, there's a lot of reasons why. There are historical reasons why uh, American politicians were uh, inclined to support the the Zionist movement before 1948 and since uh, the State of Israel. Um, There are cultural reasons. uh, There are reasons having to do with Uh, the Bible with a sense of shared um, kind of religious tradition. Uh, the Old Testament uh, is very prominent in, in, in American Protestant Christianity, especially um, <clears throat> there is a, 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 a certainly the Holocaust affected American thinking and the history of uh, anti-Semitism uh, against the Jews in the West in particular. And so there's a, Um, there's on the one hand a cultural affinity, on the other hand there's this sense of historical obligation to the Jewish people, um, and and so they immediately were able to connect and relate to the Zionist movement and their demands. Um, and almost immediately the Palestinians and their political aspirations became invisible. And so someone like Woodrow Wilson, who was a champion of self-determination, for colonized people all over the world, especially in the Middle East, um, there was this kind of exception uh, that was really mostly unconscious on his part, um, where he simply didn't see the didn't see the contradiction and think all people should have the right to self-determination um, except for the majority of the population uh, in this country in the Eastern Mediterranean between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, so it, it's you know, and that's where the blind spot comes in. Is um, he? It's not that he um, didn't know. Um, it's just it, it's just simply that other issues overshadowed, other priorities overshadowed um, 
the concerns and demands of, of the Palestinians. Although, like you mentioned, uh, Khalid, in your book, there were there was a hearing, I think, in the Congress and uh, Palestinians and uh, even uh, a rabbi and some Americans spoke uh, then, but I think nobody listened. Was it because of the Balfour Declaration or was it later on uh, when they wanted to, uh, about the creation of the state in 1948? What was the hearing in the Congress? Yeah, the hearing in 1922 was fascinating because uh, it was relatively balanced, especially when you compare it to our hearings today. They had a total of 10 witnesses, uh, five of whom were in favor of the Balfour Declaration and creating a Jewish home uh, in Palestine, and five were opposed to it. Um, most American Congress members at that time were already in favor of, of Zionism, um, especially... Uh, much like today, uh, representatives from New York and other states where there was a large Jewish community. Um, and, and if you look at that hearing, you find lots of references to the Bible, lots of references to uh, American pioneers who settled and, and tamed uh, the West, uh, the, the West in terms of the American continent. Um, and and comparisons with Native Americans and and Palestinians uh, who were seen as less civilized and therefore not really worthy of self-governing um, and and who they felt would be uh, who would benefit from the uh, from uh, Jewish colonization and economic development and, and so forth not all that different than a lot of the same uh, talking points that we hear today. Um, especially from the Trump administration. Um, and so in this hearing, um, I mean, that's it's, it's one reason why I looked at this whole historical period is because there are so many common threads. Mm -hmm. And one of the common threads is the presence of a very prominent Zionist lobby. Um, another prominent uh, thread is uh, a very sympathetic Congress. We've always had a very sympathetic Congress. Um, uh, and then we see that playing out in this hearing in, in 1922, in which even two Palestinians testified uh, and, and who repeatedly told these members, we are the majority of the population, we want to be independent, we want to develop and cultivate our own country, uh, we should be given the priority, and... And so it's really remarkable because it's not as if American policymakers didn't know where Palestinians um, uh, came down on this issue or how they felt or what their demands were. They always knew. They knew in 1922. They knew in 1947 when the U.N. voted to partition. They knew uh, in, in the 1950s and 60s when refugee groups told American politicians Don't treat our issue as purely a refugee or a mm -hmm. humanitarian issue. We are a political issue. Um, and for years they ignored it, really until the 1970s. Um, and it took many years after that before they were willing to deal with Palestinian political leaders. Um, and, and so the, yeah. 
the trend, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I would like to uh, just remind our listeners that this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM, and I'm talking to Khalid Al Jindi, and he is the author of Blind Spot. So he is talking uh, about, uh, uh, actually, I want to say it's a fascinating book, but also very disturbing for me, especially that I am of Palestinian background uh, for many, many reasons. One of them is exactly what you're talking about, uh, Khalid, is that uh, since the Balfour Declaration, the U.S. has been uh, like uh, continuously supporting the very powerful part of the peace process and till this day um, you explain in the book uh, what happened during the Kennedy administration Johnson, Truman uh, Obama, uh, Clinton the two Bushes and up to this uh, moment uh, the theme seems that uh, whether they know or they don't know all these things that you're talking about at the end of the day this brought no security to Israel Uh, did not uh, lessen the uh, anti-American sentiment in the region. It is still the problem. And I want to read uh, from your uh, book, page 43. And I'm quoting here uh, from the uh, CIA memo. It says, in the event that partition is imposed on Palestine, the resulting conflict will seriously disturb the social, economic, and political stability of the Arab world. And U.S. commercial and strategic interests will be dangerously jeopardized. I mean, can we apply this CIA assessment to this day? Well, uh, we can do more than apply it. It actually was prophetic because it essentially came true. Uh, the CIA and the State Department in, in those days argued very strongly against American support for the Zionist movement uh, and for partitioning Palestine because they felt it would alienate the Arabs, it would destabilize the region, um, it would drive Arab states into the arms of the Soviet Union. And, of course, it did all of those things. Um, and uh, we had similar warnings from uh, American diplomats who were based in Jerusalem at the U.S. consulate as early as 1919, exactly 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the consul general uh, in, in Jerusalem, his name, I believe, was Otis Glazebrook, he also warned very clearly that um, this, uh, his exact words escape me, but I think they're quoted in the epigraph in the, in the beginning of chapter one. Uh, his warning was, in this land... Um, there will be a, a huge uh, explosion that will engulf the region because of uh, because of this uh, essentially this uh, Zionist movement, and so we have to be very careful in how we proceed as Americans. And uh, you know, every prediction that these diplomats and that Palestinians themselves predicted, you know, one of the really tragic aspects of this hearing you referred to in nineteen. 19- 22 is these two Palestinians who, who testified, who were completely discounted by, um, uh, by, the, by the U.S. lawmakers who were on the panel. Um, they specifically warned, they said, if you support this Zionist movement in our country, we will either be subjugated or expelled um, as a people, as a majority. They understood what the success of the Zionist movement meant for them as a as a population. Um, and, of course, it's exactly what happened. They were expelled. Uh, two-thirds of the Palestinian population in 1948 uh, had to flee or were expelled from their homes in the course of Israel's creation. And so 
what is also remarkable is that there's never uh, a moment afterwards where U.S. policymakers say, you know what, they were right. Um, this is exactly what they warned and exactly what happened. Um, there is just the kind of, well, we forget about what just happened and we mm-hmm. hit the reset button and we, we continue. It's it's just you know, the, going the on. Spot just keep reinventing itself. I, I want to ask you about uh, one of the most, uh, I'm going to try to use very good language, despised personalities in the Arab world is Henry Kissinger. I know some people load him here, but uh, very few, of course, because he's a war uh, criminal on many levels. But you say that he kind of set the stage, the, like let's move into the 19, late 1960s, into the 70s, maybe in, even into the 90s. You, you say in your book that it was Henry Kissinger that kind of uh, hijacked the, any attempts uh, on the peace process and that he set the tone and the pace for the peace process to come uh, that we have witnessed later on. Can you explain what was his strategy? Like, what was he thinking of where he set the standard for any attempts to have a peace process with the Palestinians and the Israelis? Yeah, sure. I mean, Henry Kissinger was the uh, architect of the U.S.-led peace process between Arabs and Israelis in general. Um, uh, but specifically, he was, I think, the, the, the godfather of American policy toward the Palestinians. So, uh, uh, you know, he had a, a vision for how Arabs and Israelis should make peace, and it was based on Israeli power. It was based on Israeli preeminence um, in the same way that it was based on American global preeminence vis-a-vis the Soviet Union and, and, and any you know, any rivals uh, in the world. And so he saw the United States and Israel as two powerful countries who had to dominate, and peace and stability would emanate from that dominance. Um, And so that would require, in terms of Israel, Arab states making peace with Israel one by one, um, separately, of course. He didn't want to deal with the issue as a comprehensive whole or have a united Arab front, for example. Um, first you take out Egypt, then you take out uh, Jordan, uh, and then you take Syria. And then at the very, very end, um, after, uh, and he would emphasize this, after the PLO has been weakened, then you bring in the Palestinians. And so this idea of uh, the, you know, obviously the power dynamics were, were front and center for Henry Kissinger. Um, in his view, a weak PLO, a weak Palestinian leadership would be beneficial for the peace process. And so that idea gets embedded in, it becomes a school of thought in American policymaking, particularly on the Republican side, but, but it, there's, a, there's a bipartisan element to it. Um, and this view that we see kind of coming to fruition, especially in the 1990s and, and 2000s, uh, of Palestinian politics as a pathology, as something that was defective and um, needed to be fixed and cured. Isn't that um, the racist, Khaled? I mean, you could argue that, certainly, um, but there is there is a sense, and if you read someone like Elliot Abrams um, and what he's written, he has a book on the subject uh, called Tested by Zionists, and he was the principal architect of George W. Bush's Middle East policy for, for many years, his view is very clear that Palestinian political culture, uh, Palestinian political demands are all 
kind of manifestations of this pathology, they're inherently extreme, um, calling for the right of return, um, calling for a total end to the occupation that, you know, he saw this as, as signs of, it, of Palestinian intransigence, uh, which is really remarkable because in order to, to see it that way, you have to be looking entirely from an Israeli, from, if you look at the issue from, from the position of Israeli politics, then of course Palestinian politics looks like it's defective in the same way that you look at Israeli politics through the lens of Palestinian nationalism and Israeli politics look very defective. Um, uh, but even as an American official, he didn't have that ability to distinguish and say, well, look, you know, all political actors have their political cultures, they're extremists, um, their uh, historical narratives. Um, and my job as a mediator should be to navigate between them, not simply to adopt one of them uh, and impose it on the other. Um, but what's interesting is that it, it it's not just on the uh, on the Republican side. During the Barack Obama presidency, if you remember this issue that Israel demanded to be recognized as a Jewish state, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that had clear implications for the Palestinian minority in Israel, for uh, you know for democracy in general, for equality, equal citizenship. Uh, in addition to the implications for Palestinians and and the refugees and their rights and the historical narrative of Palestinians that historic Palestine is also um, uh, something that they claim is their historical homeland. Um, uh, Even Obama administration adopted that demand, which was essentially requiring Palestinians to accept a major pillar of the Zionist narrative, which is this is the historic land of the Jewish people. So if it's the historic land of the Jewish people, then it's by definition not the historic land of the the Palestinian people. And so it's one thing for John Kerry or Barack Obama to believe that. It's another thing to expect Palestinians To to, to accept that as if they were going to negate their own historical narrative. It's it's interesting, uh, Khalid, that you mentioned that because throughout uh, the time, and I have so many callers who call to say that Israel never found a partner. I mean, what else do they want from the Palestinians to do except just uh, uh, back their uh, goods and uh, leave the land totally? But, uh, you know, I feel like when I read uh, or I was reading your book that no matter what the Palestinians do, they, the Israel comes with, a, with another demand that really uh, infringes on the rights of the Palestinians. When is this going to stop? I mean, there is uh, with the current uh, president, and I would like to really talk about that in a minute, but um, what I feel is that the PA is going to disintegrate. I mean, is it better for uh, the US and Israel to have a third intifada? I mean, is that yeah. coming, maybe? I mean, it's certainly possible. Um, I mean, the the old trope that Israelis don't have a peace partner is simply untrue. You've had, at least since 1988, a PLO leadership that has recognized Israel's right to exist, not just Israel's existence, um, and uh, have the PLO agreed to end the armed struggle and, and, and to negotiate and seek a peaceful. 
solution. Obviously, there were exceptions to that. Um, there were exceptions on both sides where the two sides didn't meet their obligations. Um, but, but of course, there is a, a partner. What there hasn't been is a partner that is willing to sign over all of its rights. Um, you still have, you know, one of the remarkable things about Mahmoud Abbas's leadership is that he's been extraordinarily accommodating to American demands in particular. Um, he is, he has said that something like a third intifada would be a catastrophe for Palestinians and that he would do everything he could to prevent uh, armed struggle. He has done a great deal to promote uh, security cooperation with the Israelis. He has, unlike his predecessor, Yasser Arafat, um, has been very clear in denouncing any and all uh, forms of political violence. And, and he wants to pursue a peace solely through uh, negotiation. negotiation. Yeah. And he's been very willing to even, you know, the, what's remarkable is that Palestinians had a civil war um, in large part because it was uh, it was required by the American administration, the Bush administration, for the for the PA to fight against Hamas uh, and to defeat Hamas. Of course, they weren't defeated, and Hamas ended up taking over uh, the Gaza Strip. But it became a prerequisite. If you want to be part of this peace process, you have to defeat part of your political. Uh, uh, you have to militarily defeat them. And so civil war, in a way, became a requirement for Palestinians to participate in the peace process. And so what happens is you, you have a very accommodating Palestinian leadership. Um, but if you look at where we are today, they're simply too weak to be a partner. So in some ways, it's self-fulfilling. If you keep putting all of these demands and conditions on, on the weaker side in the negotiations, um, uh, they become uh, very pliant, but also too weak to do anything. Now Palestinians are divided. Uh, Abu Mazen is hugely unpopular, uh, and he doesn't have the legitimacy to sign a peace deal, even under the Obama administration. Forget about uh, where things are with Trump. Um, and especially, uh, Khalid, uh, sorry to interrupt, but especially that the U.S. has cut uh, any kind of uh, funding and also to UNRWA, except for uh, the security coordination, because we're running out of time. I want to ask you about uh, uh, really uh, Trump and the moves that he has uh, taken, which you say uh, has been set uh, really uh, in the past hundred years. But and this uh, thing, the so-called uh, deal of the century, that it's... <laughs> for some reason it's not happening yeah how is how are like in a like three four minutes maximum uh how is how are things and there is no peace process under uh, uh trump yeah and there, there's certainly no peace process and there is no hope of an american-led peace process but an american-led peace process was already dead um before trump what Trump is now, you know, he died under the Obama administration for lots of reasons that I, you know, talk about in the book. Uh, but it was, it basically ceased to function. Um, what Trump has been doing is not to uh, revive the peace process, but to destroy any vestiges of the old peace process that was based on land for peace, uh, two-state solution, um, uh, the creation of a Palestinian state. Uh, resolution 242, 
1967 line, all of the old uh, uh, ground rules of the peace process, he's trying to eliminate them. He's trying to take all of these issues off the table one by one, um, trying to redefine Palestinian refugees to make you know, the vast majority of Palestinian refugees uh, to make their their status disappear, to make the issue go away. Um, uh, cutting the UNRWA funds is one aspect of that. Uh, the United States was the largest single donor to UNRWA and has been since 1949, um, and now it's completely eliminated it. This is an extremist kind of approach. Mm-hmm. You know, if you take, you know, Rashid Khalidi has an excellent piece in the New York Review of Books in the last, uh, I think it was two days ago. Um, and he's basically, Trump has taken the wish list of the uh, extreme right wing in Israel uh, and is implementing it one by one, recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital, uh, annexed the Golan, um, uh, uh, undercut uh, UNRWA, eliminate the refugee issue, take Jerusalem off the table, take the two-state solution off the table, this is the Trump plan. The Trump plan is to rewrite the rules of the game and essentially to make Israel's occupation more livable, perhaps, you know, spruce it up a little bit, make it more... But it uh, didn't work before, Khalid. I remember the latest interview with uh, Prince Jared. He says, uh, so Palestinians can pay their mortgages. <laughs> What mortgages for some... God's sake, it seems that the blind spot is also uh, in Israel because, I mean, they have tried anything in the book for the past hundred years and nothing worked. Yeah, of course, the Israelis, it's clear, Israelis have a blind spot because they're blind to their own power and they're blind to Palestinian uh, national aspiration. Um, but in terms of the Trump administration, they have gone from a blind spot to a blindfold. Uh, I mean, they're completely blind. They're the most extreme manifestation Uh, where they see it's really this conflict, and you can see this in Jason Greenblatt, the, the special envoy, in his tweets, for mm-hmm. example. Um, he sees this issue as it's it's not a real conflict where Palestinians or even the two sides have legitimate grievances. Um, it's, a, it's a conflict because it's because Palestinians think it's a conflict. And if we just change their attitude, if we change their view of the occupation, if we make the occupation more livable, if we create economic opportunities, um, then then they will stop demanding things like independence <laughs> and freedom and, and basic rights, uh, which, of course, is... Is laughable, uh, I think, to say uh, the least. Uh, but, uh, you know, any World Bank report or uh, United Nations report that looks at this issue has been very, very consistent. Uh, you cannot have even economic development uh, and real prosperity in the Palestinian economy in the context of occupation. Occupation and Israeli restrictions are the single biggest impediment to the Palestinian economy. And so this approach by Kushner and his people is completely divorced from reality. 
I want to uh, thank you, uh, Professor and uh, Mr. Khalid Al-Jindi, the author of Blind Spot America and the Palestinians from Balfour to Trump. Thank you so much for being on True Talk. We need to move to our uh, second segment. Listen uh, to the sister of Dia, one of the uh, dental students that was murdered uh, in 2015. Our media ignored uh, this uh, event uh, as it was unfolding. It became a public story and, and later our media catch Uh, on uh, this uh, horrendous terrorist attack that took the lives of three people. This is the sister of uh, one of the uh, students, Dia, the dental student, uh, the male uh, dental student. And this is the sentencing, sentencing of the terrorist who uh, killed them. This is the sister. As uh, When we come back, we're going to be talking to Rwaida Abdelaziz, who was at the court at the time. Listen to this. This is WMNF 88.5 FM. While candidates reap political and financial gains, American citizens are losing their lives to this hateful rhetoric. Hate crimes across all marginalized groups are on the rise, and the deadliest attacks in history against LGBTQs, Jews, and Blacks have all happened in 2015 onwards. In our current political climate, it is not only acceptable, but indeed advantageous to demonize Muslims. It's heartbreaking, defeating, insulting to see the Muslim travel ban upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States. Yesterday, the words Irish, Catholic, Italian were pejoratives. Today, it's Muslim, Black, immigrant. Who will it be tomorrow? Professor Summer's testimony shows what our community has known all along. Dia, Yusur, and Razan were murdered in an Islamophobic hate crime. Let's call this what it is, a terrorist attack, an ideologically motivated act of violence. Craig Hicks entered the safety of Dia and Yusur's home and executed them because he didn't like the way they looked. Dia, Yusur, and Razan died because they were Muslim. Do you know how insulting, hurtful, demeaning, and traumatizing it is to take the words of the murderer who turned himself in smiling as the official version of events and call it a parking dispute? Reverse roles for a second and have a Muslim executing three American college kids who were not Muslim in their home. You don't even know the motive. What would we have called it? A terrorist attack. Everyone in this country would have heard about it. Instead, our community had to fight just to be heard on the local news. Somehow, when a white man commits gruesome acts of violence, he's a lone wolf, mentally deranged, or driven by a parking dispute. Words matter. Legal precedence matters. It's incomprehensible to me that in the state of North Carolina, hate crime statutes apply only to misdemeanors and not felonies like murder. Craig Stephen Hicks, I haven't been able to say your name until right now. I see you looking at me and I have questions for you. 36 seconds. That's how long it took for you to shatter our lives forever. Why? 
Was it worth it? What would have happened had you decided on that fateful evening to join them for dinner instead? How might this day, June 12th, 2019, be different for you, for me, for all of us, and for Dia Yusur and Razan? Alas, I will never know. But this is what I do know. I will never hug my brother again. I will never be an aunt to their children. I will never have holidays with them ever again. These are nevers that are as real as it gets for me, my for me, my family, and my community. If you're just joining us, this is True Talk on WMNF 88.5 FM and you were listening to one of the sisters of the deceased. Uh, we have uh, Rwaida Abdelaziz. Good morning, Rwaida. Are you there? Good morning. Uh, Rwaida, you were covering uh, the sentencing of uh, the criminal who took the lives of these three American students. Can we start by telling us what had happened in uh, 2015 to these students? Yeah, of course. So on February 10th, 2015, um, Craig Hicks, who was the neighbor of three young Muslims, Bia Barakat, with his wife, Yusur Abu Salha, and her sister, Razan Abu Salha, all resided um, in a condominium, Finley Forest in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. When on that day, Craig Hicks um, confronted Dia in their home, when he, when Diot had opened the door, he shot him and then continued to enter the home and then shot and killed Yusr and Nazan execution title. And then on his way out, shot and killed Diot one more time. And later in that day, Craig Hicks turned himself in to Chapel Hill Police, um, where he was then arrested. Um, shortly after all, within the same day, Chapel Hill Police Department came out and said that the preliminary investigation had indicated the shooting um, and the crime was ongoing by a, quote, parking dispute. Um, and that has been um, a big part as to why uh, this case um, was such a big deal to the Muslim community, why it was such a big deal to civil rights activists. Um, and why four years later, even after the arraignment that happened um, this week, that we are still talking about it. Uh, Rwaida, let me uh, ask you about the media reaction because, uh, uh, you know, I found out uh, it happened maybe, let's say, an hour after. Our media was silent until almost 24 hours, uh, only after they paid attention that uh, it's trending worldwide. Why was the media so silent about such a horrendous uh, killing of young students? It's a fantastic question. I think there are different factors. I think the first factor is that people forgot about this horrific incident. That four years later, that these families. No, I meant, I meant uh, the moment it happened, like uh, an hour later, six hours, twenty-four hours later, when yeah, it happened in two thousand fifteen. Right, right. It's still arguably so. You know, I think the lack of media coverage with the arraignment and even then. Um, has been uh, uh, deafening, but yes, during in 2016, on the day of uh, the coverage, like Suzanne had mentioned in her testimony, she was struggling just to be heard on local news, right, before it even reached national and international news. And I think a lot of that had to deal 
with the predominant media narrative that started um, after this horrific attack. So the fact that this was, you know, a, a so-called parking dispute, that this was just an argument between neighbors and a local condominium that had nothing to do with religion, that had nothing to do with bias, and that had nothing to do with bigotry, um, which we have confirmed um or which prosecutors have confirmed this week, but it's something that the family and, and Muslims at large knew all along. And I think that narrative um, has damaging consequences, and one of those damaging consequences is uh, not having the proper media coverage of this. I think another reason is just understanding the overall um, poor media representation in American media generally. Um, for many, many years now, um, Muslims have been fighting. There's been this constant battle when it comes to representation um, on mainstream media. And that has to do with how and when Muslims are portrayed, right? When Muslims are portrayed um, on mainstream media, it's a, a biased one. It's a negative one. It's one that has become uh, oversimplified. Um, and that only ties Muslims and Muslim depictions to violence, to terrorism, and as to victors, right? Not necessarily victims. Mm -hmm. There have been multiple studies that have shown that the depiction of Muslims um, is uh, only negative and consistently ties them um, to political affairs. With one study that came out not too long ago that said perpetrators of violence who were perceived to be Muslim uh, received uh, 700 times more media coverage than their yeah. non-Muslim counterparts, right? So oftentimes when it comes to Muslims in media, their stories are dismissed, devalued, and just largely ignored. So when this is the foundation that Muslims are only the cause of violence and never the victims the victim. of violence, like in Chapel Hill, it becomes that much harder just to be heard on local news, just for people to sympathize with them. And I think essentially Muslims have been stripped of their humanity. And we saw in this case that even after you had three young Muslims who have accomplished so much, who were beautiful in their lives, who have been spoken about with pride and dignity and honor from their friends and families and everyone that knew them, that no one knew this for, for way too long. Mm -hmm. So I think that the precedent and the foundations um, that have been set when it comes to the media representations of Muslims um, made this a difficult battle. One of the shocking things in the sentencing of this uh, criminal, I don't really even want to honor him and mention his name, is the fact that uh, Dia, the male, uh, the husband, uh, was taping the confrontation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and so within the, uh, one of the surprising revelations of the arraignment was um, this video. And so prior to this, we knew a video existed, but we didn't know who recorded it and what the video contained. And so prosecutors unveiled at the arraignment that Dia had been recording, had taken his cell phone um, and recording his confrontation with Craig Hicks. And some reports say that the reason he was doing this was that he was trying to collect enough footage to... Um, put in a restraining order because this man has been harassing them for so long to show that this wasn't just a one-time encounter, that this, uh, this man, this, uh, Craig Hicks, um, has had multiple issues um, with this family and, and other families of color in the condominium. So uh, when the 
footage was shown for the first time ever, it was quite difficult. And what it's shown um, was uh, opening the door and him answering him politely. And one of the main reasons why the video was so important and why Yusuf actually um, had told me uh, not too long ago why they wanted to show this video was because among the defendant's uh, case, he was accusing the three Muslim students of mouthing off to cursing him out and in a way blaming them for what had happened, right? That they had aggravated him, that they had started one way or another. And what the family was said was just an attempted character assassination um, of uh, the siblings of the off. And so this is one of the reasons why they wanted to show this footage to prove that it was unprovoked and it was premeditated on um, their murder. So in this footage, you see Dial opens the door. He's not doing any of those things. It takes absolutely nothing. It's very quickly. Um, Craig Hicks shoots him. Uh, the cell phone then falls to the floor. And so, therefore, it's only recording the ceiling. But you hear in the background him um, entering the home. You hear the girls, Yusuf and Razan, pleading for their lives, um, crying and, and screaming. And then you hear gunshots. Um, and then there's silence from them. And then as Craig Hicks is leaving, you hear him shoot the yacht once more. It was a horrifying video. It was traumatizing for many in the room. You had the family members faint after you saw the, the faces of the community members who were there just being so startled and so pale. It was so difficult, which is why um, this footage is, is under court order. It's sealed and, and it's not public. And even just the descriptions of it was so harrowing. But the family made a conscious choice um, to play that footage, to, to clear their name and to prove um, that this was a premeditated um, attack by the defendant. Um, and it was difficult. Uh, it was very difficult, Samar, but I think it was important. Yeah. And there was a reason as to why they played it. It's amazing. And I saw footage of the sister collapsing uh, on the floor. Actually, she couldn't uh, uh, take it. The one we I, we played the segment. We're running out of uh, time, Rwaida, but I want uh, to know what was the sentencing for this terrorist? What was the... Yeah. So Hicks has pleaded guilty to three counts of first-degree murder, and he also pleaded guilty to charging a firearm, a firearm into an occupied dwelling. So he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences, so one for each murder, without the possibility of parole. Um, at first, they were seeking the death penalty, but they dropped that a couple months ago because they wanted to um, wrap up this trial sooner than later so that their families could find some closure and move on. Um, but he does not have the possibility of parole. He is sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. And so um, hopefully the family is has closure on and has closure. And then I think also just quickly to mention that the police department did come out in a statement and, and agreed with the prosecutors that hate and bigotry did fuel this. This was not a parking dispute, which was also extremely important to the families, not as important as the sentencing, to clear their name, to prove that this was an act of anti-Muslim hate and uh, we, we are thinking of them and, and hopefully they're able to overcome them. Thank you so much, uh, Rwaida Abdelaziz and thank you our listeners, uh, those who are listening fa on Facebook and Twitter, reminding you that uh, we will be fundraising next week. WMNF 88.5 FM, NPR News is next.